The entire episode of Balak and Bilam, and of course, who can forget the talking donkey, provides many lessons and potential areas of study. But perhaps the most confounding aspect of this story is the apparent inconsistency and change of heart, change of mind, that Akash Baruch Hu himself seems to undergo. On the one hand, in the beginning, in Perak Chafet, Pasuk Yudbet, when Balak asks Bilam, hires him through his emissaries to go, Bilam says, I, I don't know, I have to ask Hashem, I have to ask God. And right away in Pasuk Yudbet, the Pasuk tells us that Hashem tells him unequivocally, Lo you can't go, Lo you can't curse them, Ki Baruch Hu, they're a blessed people. So Hashem initially is very, very against. However, as we know, after receiving the negative response, Balak sends back more prestigious emissaries and more money. And once again, Balaam says, okay, I have to ask God. And then now, eight psukim later in Pasachaf, Hashem tells him, Im lecha boho anashim, kum lechitam. These people have come again to get you to go with them. You're allowed to go with them. Just one condition. But when you get there, you can only say what I give you permission to say. You can only do what I tell you to do. And that's a, you know, a, a ultimately, subsequently fulfilled condition. But at the moment, he gives them permission. And the very next pasuk we are told, Balaam having gotten the positive reply from Hashem, he saddles up and he starts going. And then in the very next pasuk we read, Hashem is angry at him that he went. What is going on? This whole thing is so confounding. First Hashem said no, then Hashem said yes, then Balaam went, and then Hashem got upset at him for going. Isn't he just following Hashem's second and subsequent explicit permission? What is going on? So the Ramban, in a lengthy and detailed explication of these psukim, gives the following beautiful and brilliant parshanut, and insight into the story. He says, really, there really were multiple stages. Initially, in the first stage, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says not to go, because the only reason they want you is to curse this nation, Am Yisrael, and this is a nation that's blessed, as we read in Pasuk Yudbet. However, the second time, when they come back, and now again, a second time, Bilam asks HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Hashem basically says to him, yes, you can go, kum leich itam, if, here's the key point as Ramban, if they just want you to go with them, there's nothing wrong with you going. There's nothing wrong with you asking. Says Ramban, it's always good to be shoalitza from Hashem. What could be bad about asking Hashem for permission for something? And Hashem says, listen, if the reason you're, you, they want you to go, if the reason you're going to go is just to accompany them, then there's nece- not necessarily any problem. I've already told you the first time you asked, Ape Sukkim earlier, I've already told you you can't curse them. But now they want you to go anyway just to accompany them. You could go, and by the way, plus an extra point, if it turns out that I have you and I want you to bless them, then, you're going to have to do and say what I say to say. Don't be scared of them. So on that condition, Hashem says, no problem, you can go. However, says Ramban, then comes the, the next stage. And that is that Bilam should have told the people that those were the conditions upon which he was going. But Bilam never did. He never told them that, because of course he realized, and he was scared, that if he would tell them that he was just going to accompany them, and he might even bless them, then they never would have wanted him to go. And says Ramban, he had a tremendous eagerness to go, so he kind of left out that part, 
And that gave them the impression, you can't blame them, it was reasonable to deduce on their part that if he's going, it's going to do for what we want, which is to curse the people. And then, Pasuk Chabet comes, says Ramban, and that's why HaKadosh Baruch Hu upset him. Because he didn't, you know, come forward, he didn't tell the truth as to why he was going with them, and on what condition God had given him permission, and he gave them the impression, Rahman al-Atzlan, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu had given permission to curse. If that's not bad enough, says Ramban, it's inviting a subsequent Chil Hashem. Because of course, no such thing took place, and if Bilam will try to curse, that's not going to happen. He's eventually going to be told, you know, clear that he can't curse them, and as we all know, he'll eventually bless them, and it will look to the emissaries, to the shlichim of Balak, as if Hashem changed his mind yet again, and he's fickle, and it will look and make look Hashem look like he's indecisive. That itself is a chil Hashem. In a much shorter presentation, the Sforno also seems to have this interpretation that the reason Hashem got angry at Bilam is that even though he gave him permission to be a neutral observer, Bilam actually went as an interested party. However, as Nachama Leibowitz points out, this beautiful and brilliant interpretation of the Ramban and as well the Sforno explains everything on a logical, conceptual level, but there doesn't seem to be any indication in the text, and the Ramban doesn't necessarily bring any indication in the text, that that was what Bilam was doing. From the text itself, there's no reason to think that Bilam was going for any other reason than to bless the people. After all, Hashem already told him that you can't bless them, and so far Bilam is just saying, I'm going to do whatever God says. So there's no obvious reason why, to proof that that's why Bilam was going, that he had a nefarious change of heart, or that clear why Hashem is angry at him. It's an interesting theory of the Ramban and the Sforno, but it's hard to see it rooted in the text. However, Chama Leibowitz points out, perhaps Rashi is sensitive to this, even though Rashi doesn't give the whole elaborate theory, but Rashi does say on those words that Bilam went with them, Vayelech im sarayameyav, Rashi adds, Vayelech im sarayameyav, meaning, Libo kalibam shava, he went of one mind. He was going from that moment to curse the people. But again, where did Rashi know this? What's Rashi getting at? So perhaps for this we can turn to the Malbim, because the Malbim points out that there is a subtle nuance in the text, and perhaps this is the proof and the explanation of the Ramban, the Sforno, and Rashi. The Malbim points out that when Hashem gave Bilam permission to go, he uses the term Lech Itam. However, in the next Pasuk, when it says that Bilam went, it says that Vayelech Im, sorry, not Itam, but Im. Says the Malbim, there's a difference. Itam is more going along in a formal sense, but remaining an independent voice, a separate point of view. But what Bilam did was, in fact, the opposite. im. He went of one mind. And I think the lesson here, of course, for us is that very often we choose and with our good reasons to walk with people who may not be exactly who we are. That can sometimes be allowed, but it always has to be itam, keeping our independence and never im. After the emissaries of Balak have made Bilam the offer of a lifetime, incredible wealth and riches, if he'll just agree to curse the Jewish people, the next morning we are told, that Bilam says to those emissaries, return to your land, Hashem will not let me go with you. Commenting on this statement that Bilam made to the emissaries, Rashi says that in fact what Bilam was really saying is that I can't go with you because you are officers of a lower rank and much lower prestige than I am. If you'll only send back officers of a higher rank and of greater prestige, then it would be worthy of me to go with 
such people. But it's beneath my dignity to go with such people as you. And of course, as Rashi points out, this was really Bilam demonstrating his great arrogance, because he didn't want to really admit the truth, which is that in the previous Pasuk, Hashem had told him, Pasuk Yudbeiz, You cannot go and curse the Jewish people, because in fact they are a blessed people. In a remarkable essay in the work Sichos Musr, the famed Roshiva of the Mir, Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz, suggests that even though Bilam was acting arrogantly, to be sure, but he was not deliberately lying. He had good reason, says Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz, to think that the real reason he couldn't go and curse the Jewish people was because those emissaries were beneath his dignity. After all, says Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz, the Orachayim HaKadosh already pointed out that we seem to have an earlier, prior expression of Hashem's incredible and exquisite sensitivity to Bilam's honor and dignity. After all, just a few psukim earlier, in Pasuk Tes, when Hashem asks Bilam, who are these people? Who are these people who have come to speak with you? Who are the people who you are consulting with? Of course, the Orachayim points out, Hashem didn't really need to have Bilam tell him who they were. Hashem knows everything. Of course Hashem knew who these people were. Rather, interprets the Orachayim, it was a rhetorical question on God's behalf, where he was basically trying to convey to Bilam, who are these people that you should be giving them any of your time? Who are these people that you should be taking into your private confidence? Who are these people that you should be bringing into your private residence? These people are beneath you. They're beneath your station. They're not on your level of prestige or honor or dignity. Why are you hanging out with such people who are beneath you? So says Rechaim Shulevitz, in light of this comment of the Orachayim, if earlier, at a previous stage of the story, Bilam saw how much Hashem was worried about his dignity, it wasn't unreasonable for him to mistakenly assume, it was a mistake, but it wasn't unreasonable, it certainly wasn't a deliberate lie, for him to think that then subsequently, when Hashem told him he could not go and curse the Jewish people, that, that was also based on the fact that the people who had been sent to hire him were beneath his dignity. This idea, which emerges from the Rashi and the Orachayim, says Rechaim Shulevitz, that we see in this story, that Hashem is acutely sensitive to the dignity and honor and prestige of Bilam, actually is expressed in a stage later in the story, which is one of, of course, the most famous uh, parts of the story, and that is of the talking donkey. We know that Bilam, in the end, does decide to go. He tries to curse the Jewish people. He's riding on his trusted donkey. And then an angel of God appears on the road, but only the donkey sees the angel, and therefore the angel will not pass. He will not go past the Angel, the donkey will not pass the angel. Bilam gets upset because he didn't see the angel. He, he hits the donkey, and eventually the angel has to reveal himself even to Bilam, and he scolds Bilam for what he did. And according to Rashi, and this is quoted in Pasuk Ahmed Gimel, based on a Medrash in the Tanhuma, when the angel is scolding Bilam for his behavior, he mentions in passing that because of his behavior, the angel had to kill the donkey. The donkey, the famous donkey donkey, is killed by the angel. And as Rashi quotes from Chazal, the angel explains to Bilam that this is a donkey who's able to see me, an angel of God, when you weren't able to see. This is an angel who had to give tochacha to Bilam. And if the donkey were to be allowed to be to remain alive, anytime people would see the donkey, they'd be, oh, oh, that's the donkey that was Bilam's. That's the donkey that could see an angel that Bilam couldn't see. That's an angel that had to rebuke Bilam. It would be an ongoing source of humiliation and embarrassment to Bilam anytime someone would see the donkey for many years to come. And therefore, to preserve Bilam's dignity, so he shouldn't be constantly reminded of and embarrassed of this episode, says the angel, I had to kill the donkey. So here again we see in a dramatic fashion, says Rechaim Shulevitz, the fact that Hashem in the Torah is so acutely sensitive uh, to the human dignity, to the embarrassment, to the pride of Bilam. 
The Medrash there, as quoted by Rashi, points out that we have a halachic uh, parallel to this, and that is the halacha which is brought down in Sefer Vayikra, if a human being commits an act of sexual perversion with an animal, an act of bestiality, the halacha is that the human being, the man or the woman, is killed as a punishment, but the animal is also. And Chazal point out, and Rashi quotes this, that the animal didn't really do anything wrong. It's the human being who is prohibited from having such activities, and it's the human being who has the free choice, the agency, and made the horrible decision and committed the act of sexual perversion. Why is the animal being killed? Why is the animal being punished? And Chazal explained, and Rashi quotes this, it is to avoid the ongoing humiliation of that person. Because if the animal were to be permitted to remain alive, anytime someone would see the animal, they'd be reminded and say, oh yeah, that's the animal that was involved in the act of bestiality with that human being, with that man or woman who was killed. And it would be an ongoing and constant humiliation and reminder of the sin and the tremendous act of wickedness that that person had done. And the person is deserving of death, they're killed, but we don't try and we have no interest in constantly remi- remembering this and continually humiliating that person. So we see this halacha is exactly parallel to what the angel did to Bilam's animal. To save him the ongoing humiliation, the animal was killed even though there was nothing wrong with what the animal had done. And Rachaim Shulevitz points out that we see from this entire story the way Hashem acts towards Bilam throughout from beginning to end, the halacha of the animal who's involved in bestiality, that the Torah pays such exquisite sensitivity and care with the human dignity of others, and not just good people or even righteous people, even wicked people. Here's a person who's violating a cardinal sin of sexual immorality by an act of bestiality. Bilam, who is considered the paragon and a paradigm of wickedness. He wanted to curse the Jewish people. The mission in Perkyovos holds him out as a role model for wickedness. And yet, the Torah and Hashem goes out of its way time and time again to show sensitivity to the covered brios of Bilam or to someone who has chayiv misa because of an act of sexual morality. What we should learn from this, the muster for all of us, as the Medrash itself says, is if we see how much Hashem in the Torah is chas al kvod roshayim, cares about even the wicked people's human dignity, all the more so should we care about good people and righteous people and be sensitive to their needs and their dignity as well. For all the twists and turns in the remarkable Bilam saga as he tries to curse the Jewish people, there's an obvious and profound question that must be dealt with. The whole premise of Balak coming to Bilam was that Bilam was already a prophet of renown, someone who was known to have divine, perhaps magical abilities to do incredible things, to forestell the future, to curse, as the case may be. But why, asks Rashi, paraphrasing the Medrash and the Tanhuma, why did Hashem allow this to begin with? Why would Hashem endow such an evil, wicked person with the power of prophecy to begin with? The whole story should never have gotten off the ground because there never should have been such a prophet like Bilaam. Why would Hashem allow His presence, His spirit, His soul, His essence to rest on such an evil person? Why would He make such a person like Bilaam into a Navi? And Rashi explains that the reason is so that the non-Jews should not be able to have an excuse. This was a preemptive strike, as it were, by a Kodesh Baruch Hu, in anticipation of an excuse that the non-Jews would have at some point in the future. How can you compare us unfavorably to the Jewish people? How can you punish us in contrast to the way you bless the Jewish people? Just because they accepted the Torah. But they had a Moshe Rabbeinu. If we had had a leader like that, if we had had a prophet like that, we also would have accepted the Torah. So says Hashem, I did. I gave you a great prophet like Bilaam. The Jewish people had their chance through Moshe. They made the most of their chance. You had a chance with Bilaam, but you and Bilaam chose a wicked path. In a similar vein, the other Midrashim make the same comment. 
but even go one step further uh, in their commentary to the Pasuk at the end of the Torah in Parshat Zos Abracha, where the Torah tests, Lo kam navi od bi Yisrael Moshe. There was never was and never will be another prophet as great as Moshe. But Chazal note that the Pasuk actually says, Lo kam navi od bi Yisrael. In the Jewish people, there never will be another prophet. Aval olam kam. But there was once upon a time a prophet in the non-Jewish world who was as great as Moshe, so it seems, and that was Bilam. Once they've made that incredible statement, going even further than Rashi did in our Parsha, maybe Rashi's implicit in our Parsha, but the, this Medrash goes even further than the Tanhuma that Rashi was quoting, then, of course, the Medrash asks, well, why did Hashem do this? Why would Hashem allow such a wicked person to be as great as Moshe? And again, the Medrash gives the same answer so that the non-Jews would not have an excuse. They had their chance. They had their great prophet in Bilaam. A question that needs to be asked, perhaps, on all of this, on Rashi and our Parsha, on these other Medrashim, is the question that the Ksav Sofer asks. And this is the Ksav Sofer, the son and successor of the famed Chassam Sofer. And he asks, really? Ech yale aladas? Ha'itachain? Could Chazal really mean, by implication and our parsha, explicitly in other sources, that Bilam was really as great as Moshe? Perhaps he was a prophet. That certainly is the simple reading of the Psukim in our parsha and other places in Tanakh. But especially in our parsha, it certainly seems that way. Okay, a prophet. That's mysterious and surprising enough. But still, to say he was as great as Moshe? How is it even conceivable to consider that? The Ksav Sofer assumes that that's ridiculous. It cannot be, says the Ksav Sofer, that that's what Chazal have in mind. So what do they have in mind? So he explains the following. We have to realize, he says, that Moshe Rabbeinu's life, or his spiritual career, as it were, as a prophet, as a leader, had two halves, two stages. The first was everything that led up until Matan Torah. The second stage was Matan Torah and everything that came after that. Even before Matan Torah, says Aksav Sofer, Moshe was a great prophet. Hashem spoke to him at the burning bush. He merited to be the one chosen to be the liberator uh, and savior of the Jewish people. He took the Jewish people out of Egypt and throughout that entire process, Hashem is talking to him. He's a Navi. He's the instrument of great, great miracles. He's obviously on a great level. But then there is Moshe Rabbeinu after his rendezvous with Hashem, 40 days on the mountain, being the instrument of Matan Torah and Kabbalah Satorah, then Moshe achieves an even higher, greater level, which is the Moshe Rabbeinu, who we love and revere for all eternity. That's the Moshe at the end of his life, the second stage of his life, from Matan Torah until his death. That's the second stage, that's the ultimate high level that Moshe reached. Before Matan Torah, he was on a different, lower level. Even that level, says Aksav Sofer, the first stage of Moshe, was a great level. So great, in fact, that no other Jewish prophet was ever as great as Moshe was in the first stage. However, says Ksav Sofer, that's what Chazal are referring to. When they say that Bilam was on the level of Moshe, they're talking about Moshe, part one. Moshe in the first stage of his career, before Matan Torah. And that was an incredible level, and it makes sense that those two would be parallel. That's the whole premise of the Midrashim. Just like Moshe was before Matan Torah, Bilam was. And therefore, you can't have an excuse if Bilam was the same level as Moshe was before Matan Torah, so they had the fair chance, just as good as the Jewish people did. However, Moshe made the right decisions, and the Jewish people followed Moshe for the right reasons, and they made the right decisions, and they became the Amanifchar who accepted the Torah. The, Jewish, the non-Jewish people who had Bilam, who was just as great as Moshe was before Matan Torah, but Bilam led an evil life, and the non-Jews didn't follow in the right directions, and therefore they have no excuses because they had their prophet who was on the same level as Moshe was before Matan Torah. Now that we understand the Medrash's comparison to, of Bilam to Moshe, Moshe on stage one, Moshe in the early stage of his career, 
The Ksav Sofer adds one critical, critical point, which is really a valuable lesson to all of us. What made Moshe part two? What made Moshe in the second stage of his leadership and religious career? What made him so great, so unique, the Lokam Yisrael Od, Navi Kamosha Od, that made Moshe so unique that no one ever was and will be like Moshe in part two? Says the Ksav Sofer, it wasn't because of what Moshe got when he was on Har Sinai, but rather what he gave, as, you, as it were. Moshe Zachav Azika Harabim. Moshe was the mezake. He was the instrument that benefited, that gave to the Jewish people this unique gift of the Torah. Alidei Cain, and it's through that, the fact that he was the mezake harabim, he was the instrument to help benefit and raise up all the other millions of Jews. That's why Al Cain, Allah ben it wasn't everything that Moshe undoubtedly received on Har Sinai, and no question he did. He experienced things that were singular and unique. But that's not what makes him uniquely great. What made him uniquely great and unprecedented, never before, never duplicated, is that he was the Zmzake Harabim in a unique way. Because he's the only one who ever will have the opportunity to be the one who gave the Jewish people the Torah. And by giving us the greatest gift we ever could have received, he achieved a level that no one else could ever and this is a tremendous lesson to us. If we want to rise to levels to maximize our potential, we have to realize that it all comes from being Mezakeh the Rabbin. We never may be, do the same thing as Moshe did, but there are many ways that we can all help the Tzibor, especially in teaching Torah, and that will be the basis of our growth, just like it was of Moshe's. The incredible story of Bilam and his talking donkey provide an opportunity to have a broader discussion about the role an understanding of miracles in general. Number one is when the Torah describes miracles such as a talking donkey, is it intended to be taken literally? Did that actually happen? Or is it perhaps just a metaphor of something else? And either way, why would Hashem either metaphorically convey something as if it was a miracle? And if he actually made a miracle, why would Hashem go out of his way to change the laws of nature? Presumably that would imply some broader purpose. So one group of Mepharshim commenting on this episode do assume that there was in fact an actual literal miracle. Svarno says the reason Hashem would go so far is because he was trying to save Bilam from himself. Intending to prod Bilam to the tshuva, he was not yet irredeemable at that point. Kliyakar, in a similar vein, somewhat elaborating on that same assumption, suggests that there was a very specific tailored message. A donkey cannot talk innately, but was given a temporary gift from Hashem to be able to participate in Hashem's plan. In a very similar way, the expectation and the hope was that Bilam would learn the lesson and realize that his prophetic ability, like the donkey's ability to talk, was also only temporary and only a gift from Hashem if it would be used for the proper purposes, for the ultimate reasons why Hashem gave the gift to begin with. Just like the donkey can only talk for the reasons that Hashem had given the gift. Bilam's ability to prophesy only intended to be the benefit of the Jewish people and not the opposite. So had he specifically learned the lessons mida mida, that the donkey was intending to convey, he would have been saved from ruination. The Meshachachma also suggested this was a very actual, literal miracle, but for a completely different purpose. In his understanding, the whole purpose of the story was very, very practical and pragmatic. Hashem wanted that all the neighboring countries and kings would be fearful of the Jewish people and leave them alone. In order to do this, he needed to show that they were untouchable. And he did this by having Bilaam bless the people, and therefore their stature increased, and no one would dare start up with them. 
But in order to create that stature, the miracle needed to be something that was public and undeniable in front of the most distinguished officers of Balak. If even a donkey can be made to speak by Hashem, says the Meshachachma, then all the other countries and the kings will reason that surely Hashem's blessing will protect them. And therefore that's why Hashem went out of his way to have this miracle in order to intimidate, as it were, all the other kings. In contradistinction with everything we've seen until now, there are some who, in fact, do not understand this as a literal, actual miracle, but perhaps something slightly different. For example, the Ramam in Mornavuchim suggests that not only the donkey, but even the angel who appeared on the road and caused the donkey to stop were not actual events that appeared in the physical world. Rather, it was a prophetic vision that Bilaam, and only Bilaam, saw. They were very real to Bilaam, but only to Bilaam, because in fact they didn't actually happen in the concrete physical world that we live in. Rather, it was a prophetic vision that Bilaam had seen. Going perhaps one or maybe even more steps further, more, most radically, but really fascinatingly, Shmuel David Lazzato, otherwise known as Shadal, a great 19th century Italian scholar, suggests when it comes to the donkey that the whole thing never happened and it was all just Bilaam understanding natural events and giving them religious and moral meaning. After all, says Shadal, if the donkey had really actually literally spoke, we would have expected Bilaam to react with such surprise. After all, who ever heard of a donkey talking? And yet in the story, Bilaam responds and corresponds and discusses with the donkey as if it's the most common, normal thing. Says Shadal, the reason is because, in fact, it never happened. What actually happened is that the donkey stopped going, perhaps because Hashem made the donkey stop, and Bilaam got angry, and he hits the donkey very hard out of anger. The donkey, naturally, as we would expect after him getting hit, starts to bray. But the way it brayed was as if to say to Bilaam, why are you doing this? What have I done to you? But then Bilaam continues to get angry and to scream more, again as if to say, the donkey brays again as if to say, have I ever reacted this way that you should hit me? In other words, it says Shadal, when the Torah says the Yiftach Hashem as Piason, doesn't mean it talked the way you and I would talk. Rather, it means he made sure in an unnatural, atypical way that the donkey would bray. He opened its mouth. It was an unusual type of braying, but it was a total natural event. It wasn't talking the way you and I talk. And therefore, because of the way in which the donkey was braying, exactly at the time that the donkey was braying, in both of those reasons, Bilaam reasoned that this combination of otherwise natural actions, not miraculous, but natural actions, were in fact Hashem's way of subtly communicating to him. So here we see a very fundamental machlokis, whether we take these psukim literally and assume that there was a real miracle that actually took place, or perhaps it was just a prophecy or just a metaphor and an interpretation of events, as any one of us might reasonably do. Sometimes we feel like Hashem is speaking to us through natural events. Says Shadal, that's what happened here. This episode in the Farshim on the Chumash should be put in context with a comment that the Mishnah in Perkei says about this exact episode, where it says in the famous Mishnah in the fifth parak of Perkyavos that Hashem made ten things in the last moments, the last seconds of creation. That is to say, at the end of the sixth day of creation, in Ben Hashmashos, as the sun is setting, the first Shabbos is about to take place, Hashem created ten things, ten miracles. And one of which, says the Mishnah, is the piha <clears throat> ason, the mouth, the talking ability of Bilam's donkey. Rashi, there in Perkyavos, as well as the Ravaji Bartanura, understand this Mishnah quite literally, that already in the six days of creation, 
the very donkey that would eventually literally talk to Bilam, that donkey was already created, even though it wouldn't be needed for many, 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 many more years until the time of Bilam. However, the Tiferes Yisrael says, no, 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 no. no the donkey wasn't created so long before it was existed and it was necessary. Rather, the potential for the, a talking donkey was created during creation. And that ability, as rare as it would be utilized, but the ability for a donkey to once in history talk was created and implanted into the original donkey. A single original donkey was created, and that was implanted, the ability through its DNA to pass it on through generation to generation until eventually in the time of Bilam, the donkey actually spoke. So here also we see two different approaches to understanding the Mishnah's description of this incredible miracle. The central narrative of this week's Parsha is, of course, Bilam's attempt to curse the Jewish people and the ultimate futility of those efforts. His klolos become brachos. Bilam's curses miraculously are transformed into blessings. And over the course of those blessings, two different times Bilam describes the Jewish people using the metaphor of a lion. First in Perchav Gimel, Pasachav Dalid, he says, Hein am kelavi yakum, ucha'ari yisnasa. This is a nation that rises like the king of beasts, kelavi yakum, and lifts itself like a lion, kha'ari yisnasa. Two different terms there in that first Pasuk. But just a few Pasukim later, in Perchav Dalid, Pasuk Tes, again, Bilam says, using similar terminology, Crouches and lies down like a lion, like an awesome lion. Who will rouse him? Two different times with different Lashonos, but all using the same basic metaphor, comparing the Jewish people to a lion. Why? Why are we compared in this incredibly important moment as Hashem miraculously transforms intended curses into blessings, why are we compared, of all things, specifically to a lion? The Lubavitcher Rebbe, as one as his Sichos, included in the collection of the Likute Sichos, second volume, noted that by referring to us as a crouching lion, in fact, Bilam is alluding to the reality that as Jews, we often appear as if we're weak, as if we're merely lying, dormant on the ground. When in fact, the truth is we are like a crouching lion, possessing enormous strength and with potential to rise with great enthusiasm and vigor, if prompted and if called for. We're crouching, but we're ready to leap. Similarly, our description is a nation that rises and lifts itself up, as the Pasuk also describes, as we interpret it as referred to the Jewish people, implies that we were previously down, or at least we appeared to be down, before we lifted ourselves up. Yisnasa. Both the first half of the Pasuk and the second half imply us being literally on the ground or close to it, and then rising up. The Rebbe explained that the prophetic allusion here is to the fact that sometimes, and especially in Gullus, we look dormant. We look like we're lying down. And in fact, more than once, perhaps sometimes often, we get knocked down. Things don't always go the way we would have liked. There are times, in fact, there have been many times that we were hurt. But the power of the lavi is that it is yakum. 
The lion cannot be tamed. The Ari is Yisnasa. You can knock it down, but it will not stay down. Similarly, the greatness of the Jewish people is that even when we're hurt, Davka, when we've taken a shot to the chin, as it were, Miyikimenu, that's when we roar like a lion and we rouse to greatness. No matter how many times we've been knocked down, no matter how bad it looks, no matter how much it hurts, Am Yisrael gets up. The Jewish people have been down before, but we are never out. The Rebbe went on to add some support for this idea to develop it based on a homiletic interpretation. Apidrush, he explained a halacha that appears in the Gemara Masech the Babakama on Dav Tezvav. There the Gemara says that a lion is a mu'ad l'olam. <clears throat> and the straightforward halachic interpretation of this statement is that the owner of a lion is always fully responsible, completely liable for any damage or destruction that his property, his lion, does. Regardless of whether or not that lion had previously acted violently, if there was, even if there was no history, no prior history of any damage or violence, it doesn't matter. Ari mu'ad l'olam, a lion is always considered potentially dangerous, and therefore the owner is always fully responsible and fully culpable for any damage that his property, that his lion impacts on other people and other people's property. However, Al-Pidrush, with a Ruach of Chasidus, and similar to what he explained about the Psukim in our Parsha, the Barber Cherebi explains and interpreted this statement of the Gemara to mean that the Ari is Muad, Milashon Amod, or Omed, that the lion is standing, the lion stands Leolam, no matter what. Whatever you throw at the lion, no matter how many times it gets knocked down, it is Muad Leolam. The lion always gets back up. And this, as we have seen in his interpretation of Bilam's brachos, is the singular greatness of the Jewish people. Shevel yipotzadik become, as the Pasuk in Mishlei tells us, no matter how many times we get knocked down, no matter how bad it looks, no matter how much it hurts, Am Yisrael gets back up. Unquestionably, I'm sure the Lubavitch Rebbe gave similar advice to countless people in individual circumstances of challenge. And there may have been numerous times, I don't know exactly how many, but I'm sure there were other times where he had to give this as more communal or more national advice. But there's at least one specific time, 1956, where we know he gave this exact message to a community that was in crisis and that needed these words more than ever. In 1956, there was a terror attack in Kfar Chabad, the new, somewhat new and nascent, still growing and weak community, developing community, of Chabad Hasidim, the Labavitch Enclave near Lud. Fedian terrorists snuck into the school spraying machine gun fire and murdered five students and a teacher. The community was obviously traumatized and in fact there was talk of closing all of the local schools. A few days after the attack, they received a brief telegram from the Rebbe whose message was encapsulated in three sharp but powerful words. Behem Shech Habinyan Tenuchamu Comfort will come through continued building. This is the eternal charge of the Am Kalavi, and this is our legacy. We are a people who builds and knows how to rise to the challenge. We always get up. We never give up. That's what it means to be part of Am Yisrael. That's our history, and that's our destiny. Whether it's individuals going through challenges, or those times where Am Yisrael as a nation has been challenged and been knocked down. We always get up. We're like the lion, and we will do so until the time of the final redemption.